Hallelujah. Father, we are so thankful for the privilege of joining the triumphal assembly of all those who have been conquered by Jesus' overcoming power. You have subdued us and bringing us in confession and repentance and faith to submit before the Lord and Savior, the chief and the ruler of all the kingdoms of the earth, the Lord and Savior over death and the grave. And so as we have joined his victory procession through the course of history, lining up behind the saints who've gone before and calling out to those now who yet are afar off, we pray that you would magnify the voice of salvation in Christ alone through the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, and may it be clear, may it be powerful, and may it be effective by the power of your Spirit's use. I pray as we open up your scriptures now, the means whereby you have revealed yourself to us, that the Spirit would open our hearts to receive, our minds to comprehend, and our lips to proclaim the glories there contained. Thank you for this opportunity that we have. May we take full advantage of it out of an overflowing sense of joy and worship to the God who saved us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Praise the Lord. What a gracious opportunity it is and what a great gift of God's grace to turn to His Holy Scriptures. This morning, I invite you to do so by visiting the Gospel of John in chapter 8. John 8 will be our opening text this morning. Let me give you a title and aim and a disclaimer. The title, Abraham as Witness. Jesus calls, as it were, Abraham as witness during his ministry. We'll see that in a moment in the reading of God's Word. The aim of this morning's message, to heed the witness of Abraham to the death and resurrection of Jesus. I wonder if you've thought of Abraham's experience in that way. Is it true and can it be said in a sense that Abraham indeed was a witness to the death and resurrection of Jesus? I think the answer is yes, and we will see that in two locations this morning, John 8 and Genesis 22. And a little disclaimer. This morning we have a bit of scripture territory to cover in the interest of a sort of making connections sermon. So hang on for the ride as we touch on a little bit more content than we normally do. The goal in a message like this is to get a wider angle lens. We've been focusing on Genesis, particularly chapter 22. This morning we'll try to widen that lens and see how the account of Abraham ties biblical themes together across the pages of Scripture. With that introduction, would you stand with me for the reading of God's Word today? Listen as the Scriptures are proclaimed in your hearing from John chapter 8, verse 48 through 58. The Jews answered him, that is, the Jews answered Jesus, quote, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my Father, and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died, and the prophets who died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say, He is our God. But you have not known Him, I know Him. If I were to say that I do not know Him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know Him, 
I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you, have not yet 50 year, you are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Verse 58, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Of particular interest to us for the theme of our message today, entitled Abraham as Witness, we note verse 56. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. Here we have a witness to the day of Jesus Christ from before the day that Jesus arrived in the life and experience of Abraham. Romans 1.20, one of those famous texts that man is without excuse because even nature itself testifies to who he is. That is, the greatness of his power and his Godhead are visible in the things that are made. Perhaps you're familiar with that. Romans 1.20 reveals that all men of every generation are without excuse in their unbelief because God has revealed himself in the things that have been made. And that revelation, it is clear, according to the apostle, is sufficient to condemn the Gentile for his rebellion against his creator. That is to say, Paul calls creation itself. These trees and this changing of seasons, the sun that's shining upon us this day, Paul calls creation itself as a witness similar to Jesus calling Abraham as a witness. And in both cases, it's a witness that testifies against the unbelieving hearer. There is an additional category of individuals, however, who Jesus addresses even more directly in the example we read from John chapter 8. So what would this category be? That would be the Jews. Or more generally, you could say, or by wider application, those with access to the written word of God. For those who have been confronted by special revelation, which means God's written word, his revealed word, not just in nature, but in his book, in the Bible. For those who have been confronted by special revelation, if they've heard the gospel, if they've read the scriptures, if they're familiar with its concepts, and they remain un unrepentant, there are additional witnesses to their guilt and obstinance. So add to the witness of nature condemning them, the witness of Abraham declaring them to be totally without grounds in their opposition to the truth. These witnesses condemning those who reject the gospel include men like Abraham who have experienced and proclaimed the word of God from ages past. Thus, he, if we could put it this way, Abraham is subpoenaed as a witness. That is, the court issues or a judge issues an edict, in this case Jesus, and that position of prosecuting attorney or judge he issues a subpoena, as it were, to the witness or testimony to the words of Abraham, along with others in the course of his ministry as he prosecutes a lawsuit. Jesus prosecutes a covenant lawsuit, showing the guilt, revealing the guilt against the hard-hearted hearers of his day. He declares to those who called him a demon-possessed Samaritan, that's literally what they called him in our text today. They said he was surely a demon-possessed Samaritan, 848. He says to them, he declares to them, quote, Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad, John 8, 56. This indictment, calling Abraham to witness against the generation of his hearers, it highlighted, it revealed their sinfulness and rebellion and blaspheming the one who indeed is the I am before Abraham ever existed. You might ask, 
How could Abraham testify to Jesus, his death and resurrection? Jesus having been born thousands of years after him. Jesus tells you the answer. It's because I am before Abraham ever was. Abraham's knowledge of Jesus was dependent on God's revelation of the Jesus who always was before he arrived in human flesh in time. And that revelation was given to Abraham, and he testified of the same, leaving all who read his words following, them, following him absolutely without excuse, and even more culpable for their unbelief. This confrontation raises an interesting question, by the way. It leads into our theme of our sermon today. When and how did Abraham see Jesus' day? Have you ever asked yourself that question? So Abraham saw Jesus' day. When and how did that happen? Well, my contention this morning is certainly the thesis of this message. Certainly a great portion of the answer to this question, when and how did Abraham see Jesus' day, can be found in our recent study of Genesis 22. I'm making the claim that in Genesis 22, in part, Abraham is seeing the day of Jesus. He is experiencing the gospel in this event of the offering of his son on the altar per God's command, and then through the, through the events that transpired, including the, subs uh, the substitute ram in the bush. Here's a heading. What aspects of Jesus' day did Abraham witness in Genesis 22? What elements of Jesus' life and ministry, person, work, and redemptive call, what aspects of Jesus' day did Abraham witness in Genesis 22? I'm going to give you four by way of category this morning. Number one, the place of Jesus' day. Abraham was witness to the place of Jesus' day, if you will. Number two, timing and certain events of Jesus' day. Abraham was witness to those. Number three, the cost of Jesus' day, which, by the way, the key phrase, the offering of the covenant son. That is the cost of Jesus' day, the offering of the covenant son, or you could say the cost of the gospel. And then number four, heavenly revelation of Jesus' day. Abraham was also witness to heaven speaking, as it were, by the angel of the Lord, to the reality of gospel to come, the reality of gospel hope even for him. These are four aspects of Jesus' day that Abraham witnessed in Genesis 22. So turn there with me if you would. And of course, some of this will overlap and touch upon our study from last week. Last week's title was the Mount of the Lord, which is the name of the place, that, or which is the place in question. Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. Verse 14, and as it is said to this day, our narrator Moses writes of his experience, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. So we see in this event that Abraham became witness to the place of, the day, of Jesus' day, if you will. That is, Abraham realized that God had appointed a specific, specific parameters, even a place that was geographically significant, upon which mountain his promises and his covenant would be affirmed, confirmed, and eventually fulfilled. Thus he called this place, the Lord will provide. This was Mount Moriah. Genesis 22, 1 through 2. Verse 1, after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, kids, what did Abraham say? You remember? God said, Abraham. What did Abraham say? Three words. Three. Here am I. Very good. Abraham, and he said, here am I. He said, that is God said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of, kids, what's the land? Bethlehem. Starts with an M? Moriah. Moriah is correct. 
Go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. This is the place of the day of Jesus, if you will, the Mount of the Lord in Moriah. Abraham named that place the Lord will provide and notice what he did, notice the effect of doing so. There was a witness in the geography and the name of the place to the truth that God will provide a sufficient sacrifice to cover man's sin, pictured in this type and symbol of the ram in the bush, to be fulfilled at a later time, where? At the place where God will provide, so to speak. Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. And notice what Moses tells us. Verse 14 continues, as, is it, as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. Where is this place? Well, this is in presumably Beersheba, which is an area in Gerar, which was the kingdom of Abimelech. We've, or we've learned all of this in the course of Genesis. Nevertheless, on this mountain, mountainous place in Moriah, or thereabouts, within three days' distance at least, Abraham travels, and then he experiences this promise. God speaks to him, and as a witness and testimony to the place of God's provision, he names that mountain the Lord will provide. And so now everyone who hears the name of that mountain is familiar with the experience that took place there, recognizes the significance of that memorial, is now responsible for the truth that it proclaims. Mount Moriah, if you will. Mount the hill, or the, uh, the mount the, the Lord shall provide, now is a testimony, even in this region, of God's work and plan to save man. Abraham named this place the Lord will provide, and thus the witness remained. And the witness not only remained in the geography and its name and location, but it also remained through Moses. Once these words were recorded in Holy Scripture, then they were immortalized for all time, and proof of that is easy for us. We are reading them even this morning. Thus, through Moses, who witnessed to what Abraham saw, through the name of the place that Abraham memorialized, the mount of the Lord proclaimed to all with ears to hear that it shall be provided. And here's a connection to the gospel. People who understood the significance of this, they were to look forward to the day when they see a son of man lifted up as a sacrifice and a provision on the mount of the Lord. When you see the son of man with the wood of the sacrifice heavy laden upon his back, Ascending the mount of the Lord, it should trigger something. There's a witness to this. Abraham saw this day before it came. There would come another, a significant son, a covenant son, who would die as a substitute, as a Passover lamb in the place of those who deserved it. And so as you look forward to what God will provide on his mountain, remember, provision is promised and secure, and it's evidenced in the testimony of Abraham, Moses, and the mountain of the Lord. Now, in case you think that's too small of a footnote for history to really notice, the testimony, the witness, only gets stronger. We don't have time to cover this in detail, but in 2 Chronicles 3.1, kids, guess where the uh, temple is built? It's built right on Mount what? Mount Moriah is correct. Now, in 2 Chronicles, again, for further study, we referenced it in passing last week, 2 Chronicles 3.1, we have that reference to the temple location, Mount Moriah. 1 Chronicles 21.22, through chapter 22, verse 1, we have an interesting account of David 
interceding, serving in something like a priestly role to stay the sword of the Lord's judgment in the hand of the angel of the Lord that was killing tens of thousands of, the pe of people on account of his own sin. How can I stop this rampage of wrath among my people for the guilt that I'm responsible for? David is crying out. And so what he does is he goes and he purchases. The angel of the Lord stops his killing and is standing upon this very mount. Remember last week we talked about the significance of the fire and the sword, the knife and the fire. Uh, significant, indicating God's wrath and the wages of sin, wrath and wages. And the, this wrath of God, just wrath, and these wages of sin are being dealt out to the people through the representative unfaithfulness, kind of representing the first Adam in this position of disobedience that uh, David had uh, committed. And then David, in a sort of a role reversal, begins to pray on behalf of the people. And a sacrifice is offered on Mount Moriah, the place that bore the name the Lord will provide, the very place that Abraham witnessed to as sacrifice that saved his son's life. And the sacrifice, the threshold of a man named Ornan who owned a field of harvest up there, that very location became a significant altar moment whereby the sacrifice offered by David actually purchased the, uh, the well-being of the people so that the angel of the Lord did not destroy the whole nation. And David was so moved by this experience that in the heart of Abraham to commemorate this occasion, he said right then and there, this this threshold of warning, this mountain, Mount Moriah, the Lord will provide. That's where I want to build the temple. And his son carried out those plans. And yes, on that very mountain, name the Lord will provide, the temple was built. How many sacrifices do you suppose were offered on Mount Moriah that spoke to the necessity of the shedding of blood for the remission of sins? Thousands upon thousands upon thousands. With every sacrifice that was slain on the altar of God's provision in the temple accommodations on Mount Moriah, it spoke of the necessity of an atonement for man's sin. And that witness of Abraham to the day of the Lord was echoed and only grew stronger and stronger and stronger as Abraham, David, and every temple sacrifice proclaimed that there is no remission of sins without a paschal sacrifice, scapegoat, lamb, dove, etc. And so the place of Jesus' day was witnessed to all the way back to Abraham and through the pages of Scripture. Second major point. What aspect of Jesus' day did Abraham witness in Genesis 22? Not just the place, but timing and certain events of Jesus' day, he was witnessed to as well. And again, of course, this would be in his experience as prophetic of something to come. Take your son, your only son, we read in verse 2, go to the land of Moriah. Abraham obeys. We pick up on the account in verse 3. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son, Isaac. He cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Two notes that would be easy to miss in the text, but with the testimony of the rest of Scripture become profound. Number one, the arrival on the, of the covenant son, that would be Isaac at this time, on a donkey, a lowly beast of burden. This journey, so to speak, was tracing the steps of a covenant son. Remember, the ultimate cost of, the, of Jesus' day was the offering of the covenant son. And though Isaac and his father arrived on this lowly donkey to this mount of the Lord's provision, 
Isaac would not be sacrificed that day. But there would be another donkey journey, if you will, which would bear a covenant son, the son of Abraham, the son of David, along the same path, so to speak, unto the hill of the Lord, unto that place. And that, brothers and sisters, is the triumphal entry of Jesus Christ. Why did Jesus choose that specific beast of burden? It was to fulfill the prophecy of Zechariah 9.9, and it was to fulfill the imagery of the man who saw his day long before Zechariah even prophesied, even Abraham, who approached the same typological place on the same beast of burden. The triumphal entry, walking in the footsteps of another lowly beast of burden, who would transport the ultimate covenant significant son to Jerusalem to declare victory over sin and death by way of the mountain of the Lord. Kids, what's the name of the place where Jesus was crucified? What's the name of that mountain? The skull. Yeah, place of the skull. That's correct. Another Golgotha. name, Golgotha, does someone say? Or Golgotha? Very good. Or he could say sometimes Calvary. Yes, those are additional names that identify the significance of the place of Jesus' uh, crucifixion. Now let's flip over to John 12 and pick up on this account. In John chapter 12, we have Jesus referencing witnesses later in this text and also fulfilling prophecy. Verse 12, we read the following. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. This is the significant son, thousands of years later, on this similar journey. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out. Kids, what did the people cry as Jesus entered? Hosanna. Anyone know what that means? What does Hosanna mean? Save us. Save us now. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Hey, kids in the room, cry out, Hosanna. Hosanna. Blessed is he. Louder, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's exactly what was going on that day. There were children in the temple crying out those same words that you kids just cried out. And what were they doing? Well, they were participating in the day of the king's arrival. This was timing and certain events that had been anticipated in the experience of Abraham literally coming to pass. Verse 14, Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, quote, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Abraham and Isaac were coming, sitting on a donkey's colt, so to speak, but there would be a king who would come later on the same beast, and Zechariah 9.9 prophesied this. Jesus fulfilled it in John 12. His disciples did not understand these things at first. They didn't draw all these connections until later. They didn't have the benefit of the Spirit putting all the dots together necessarily at this time. But when Jesus, the Scriptures go on to say verse 16, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. It was starting to come together. As you're studying scripture, look for those pieces, those puzzle pieces, and just take great joy in seeing how they fit together. It's one of the most rewarding benefits of Bible study, is seeing how the dots of God's precise plan through prophecy, through imagery, through typology, through fulfillment, fit together in a glorious mosaic of something only he could engineer. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. Isn't that interesting? More witnesses joined Abraham's testimony. Now those who saw Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead continued to bear witness. We have seen with our own eyes, we've heard with our own ears, experienced in our own lives the one who can raise the dead 
out of the grave. Who can say, come forth, and he will be lifted up. Abraham experienced this too. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard that he had done the sign. And then the story continues. We'll pause there for the moment. Suffice it to say that Abraham was witness to these events in a certain shadow form all the way back to Genesis 22. Did Abraham experience a resurrection event? Yes, he did. Not only did he arrive on a donkey, but how long did his journey take, kids? When God told him to go, he finally arrived. How long did the journey take? Three days. Three days is correct. He saddled his donkey, took the guys with them, and they went to the place, verse 4, Genesis 22. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Next week, Lord willing, we'll exposit some from Hebrews 11, which describes the experience of Abraham and Sarah receiving Isaac back from God's sentence of death, as it were, as a figurative resurrection. Isaac being spared the knife of judgment is spoken of as a resurrection event. Three days preceding a resurrection event was the experience of Abraham in this moment. And again, with the disciples and the testimony of the rest of Scripture, we can start to see some of these glorious puzzle pieces coming together, can we not? Abraham was witness to a resurrection event, Hebrews 11 tells us as much, after three days of journeying to the place of God's provision. Amazing. There are additional witnesses to this. You don't have to turn there necessarily, but I will do so in Matthew chapter 12. Here's more biblical corroboration for the concept, for this idea of the three-day framework being significant. That is to say, Abraham isn't the only witness to a resurrection-like experience. Uh, 1238, Matthew. And some of the scribes and Pharisees answering him were saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. You know, we want to see real proof that you are who you say you are. Is there a skeptical attitude? Verse 39. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Why is Jesus so direct with them, condemning their request for a sign? Why? Because Abraham had already witnessed to his day. Jonah had already witnessed it to his day. But these people were willfully blind. Though they knew the scriptures intellectually, they covered up the eyes of their spiritual understanding. They plugged their ears to the testimony in the gospel of the gospel. What did they refuse to hear? They refused to hear the following. For the sign of Jonah, you won't receive any sign, Jesus says, except that of Jonah. Verse 40. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Notice 41. The men of Nineveh will rise up in judgment with this generation and condemn it. So you see Jesus is collecting more witnesses. Now we have Abraham. We reference David. Now Jesus is summoning, as it were, the men of Nineveh and Jonah to testify against this generation, condemning it. Why? For they, speaking of the Ninevites, they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Who's greater, kids, Jesus or Jonah? Verse 42, the queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. She came at the testimony of Solomon's great wisdom given to him by God. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Kids, answer again. Who's more powerful, Solomon or Jesus? That is correct. So you see here, adding to the witness, is someone else who experienced a resurrection-like event. Three days buried, as it were, in the heart of the sea, in the belly of a fish. The power of God to raise the dead was evident when that huge beast of the sea puked Jonah up on the shore. 
Then he went and testified to Nineveh. These people didn't know Hebrew from a hole in the ground. They had no idea about the history and the testimony of Abraham, presumably straight pagans in an idol-worshiping city. But one thing they did know is that there was a God and he was proclaimed through the mouth of this prophet. Perhaps they had heard that he was spit up out of the ocean after three days buried beneath the waves and they confessed their sins and repented because the witness and testimony of that recalcitrant, bad attitude prophet, Jonah, was enough to proclaim to them that God raises the dead. There is a day of reckoning. You will pay for your sins unless you repent and seek his favor. And so they did. And now a greater than Jonah is here and the people are stopping their ears. So the timing and these certain events that Abraham experienced, the three days journey unto a resurrection event, Jonah, three days burial at sea unto a resurrection event, unto the proclaiming of the message, Solomon, evidencing the wisdom of the Lord, drawing the curiosity and testimony of kings, queens from afar, as it were, these things are witnesses to the truth of Jesus' day. What aspects of Jesus' day did Abraham witness? The place, timing, certain events. And then major point number three, the cost of Jesus' day. Again, our phrase we're working with. What is the cost of the day of Jesus? That is, the day of his redemption. It's the offering of the covenant son. The offering of the covenant son. One reason God commanded Abraham to give his son up as an offering is a picture of the necessary cost of redemption. For now, there was a ram stand-in, but was that ram sufficient? That is to say, could the blood of bulls and goats truly take away sin? The rest of Scripture testifies absolutely not. There, and in fact, one day must be the offering of the legitimate, significant, perfect, sinless God-man, Son, Son of God. And so history recorded and proclaimed, and Abraham witnessed to this truth. How does he do so? Well, remember what's in his hand. Abraham said to the young man, you stay here. He took his son with him. We're back in Genesis 22, 6. He took the wood of the burnt offering. He laid it on Isaac, his son. He took in his hand. Kid, what were, kids, what were the two things that Abraham took in his hand? Very good. The fire and the knife. So they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here am I, my son. He said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So those instruments of what's called propitiatory, wrath-absorbing, that means death, were pictured in the fire and the knife, as we've discussed. They communicate to us the wrath of God, a just God, for the rebellion of those who blaspheme him and the wages of sin that are earned those who break his law. And so the fire and the knife were the instruments of judgment that were taken by another. And that brings up under cost of Jesus' day substitutionary atonement. If Isaac was to live, if Abraham was to live, if you were to live, or if I were to live, there must be one who takes the fire and the knife in our place. Verse 13, Abraham lifted up his eyes, significant language, even at the Mount of Transfiguration, that lifting up of the eyes unto Jesus is repeated again in the experience of Peter, James, and John. In this case, we've mentioned it's a direction of the affections. It's a center of the attention. It's an awareness of the profound. When the people lifted up their eyes, in this case, Abraham, what did he see? 
he saw the sacrifice provided. Behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went, took the ram, and offered it up as a burnt offering, key phrase, instead of his son. Instead of his son. Just a little word of warning and discernment for you. What I'm describing here is called penal substitutionary atonement. Fancy name. First, name, first word, punishment. Substitution in the place of another. Third word, covering for sin. Punishment, the place of another, covering for sin. Absolutely essential, direct, clear teaching all through the pages of Scripture. It's popular in some theological, quote-unquote, circles to challenge that these days. They'll often make an appeal by saying, you know, it was years and years, thousands of years, before there was any major theologian who laid out this doctrine with any specificity that was influential in the early church. Oh, really? So you're appealing to those uh, witnesses, church fathers and so forth. We're thankful for them as far as the goodness of their ministry goes. You're appealing to them as a witness to doubt something that Abraham witnessed to? Are you appealing to them as a witness to doubt something that David witnessed to? You see, this is the way men twist the scriptures. They replace the authority of the experience of the history or church age or the fathers or their favorite theologians or their influential uh, experiences, their life, uh, you know, whatever, stuff that they understand and, you know, things that are outside the authoritative objective standard of scripture as a means to redefine or rethink or reimagine the gospel. Do not be caught up in this. If you are, if you deny any fundamentals of the truth of what Bible teaches, we have already heard of the array of witnesses that stands to condemn you. Abraham says that you are a fool for not listening to what he testified to thousands of years before Jesus came. And Jonah witnesses to you saying you are a fool to deny the only means whereby man can be saved. Salvation is by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. And even Solomon testifies that you're a fool if you do not recognize. Far less was revealed to the few in the Old Testament who confessed their sin and believed that God would provide on his mountain. So how much more guilty are we if we seek to redefine things after the fact? There are additional witnesses, just in case you needed them. Think of the guests of the Last Supper, the disciples when Jesus gathered. But that meal had a rich and long history. Went all the way back to Exodus chapter 12 where once again we have a sort of a Passover ram in our text, but there would be a Passover lamb that would be featured in the Passover meal at the Exodus, uh, of course, and that spared the people the death, the spared families the death of their firstborn, thus illustrating what we're making the point here, that there needs to be a ram, a lamb, as it were, a sacrifice to absorb God's wrath, to stand in the place of another, to atone for sins in order for there to be any salvation. What is the cost of Jesus' day? It is the offering of the covenant son. And when it's repeated three times in Genesis 22, bring your son, your only son, that illustrates the cost of true atonement. God's only son, his beloved son. What's the most famous uh, passage in all the Bible? Perhaps John 3:16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That is a reference all the way back to Genesis 22, which held out, which testified to the coming day of Jesus that proclaimed in Abraham's own experience that the cost of sin's covering is the death of the covenant son. Final point this morning. What aspects of Jesus' day did Abraham witness? Well, the place, timing and events, the cost, and finally, 
Abraham witnessed to heavenly revelation of Jesus' day. That means direct word from God from glory proclaiming truth. 22.1 Genesis. After these days, the Lord tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here am I. He, the Lord said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah. So that would be God speaking audibly from glory, number one, event number one. Yet it happens again. Verse 9, when they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built an altar. He laid the wood. He tied up his son. He was just about to kill Isaac. In verse 11, a voice intervenes. But the angel of the Lord called to him from where, kids? Where was the angel of the Lord? From heaven. The angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. Once again, he answers, here am I. That's number two. Number three, direct revelation from heaven itself, God speaking audibly to the ears of Abraham, verse 15. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time. If you count the first, this would indeed be a third. We find the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. Each time God speaks, that threefold phrase is reiterated. Abraham speaks, he says, take your son, your only son, to Mount Moriah. I'm sorry, God speaks and says that. Secondly, the angel of the Lord, who we find is God in probably pre-incarnate form, is Jesus himself, Christ from heaven, and says, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, therefore the covenant is going to be promised. And finally, in verse 16, once again, the angel of the Lord speaks from glory. He says, because you have done this and not withheld your son, your only son. So mark this. Three times from glory, the audible voice of the Lord is identifying that Abraham's son, his beloved son, is of significance to the story. And this, I submit, testifies to Jesus' day. How do we know? Well, I beg you to turn to the Gospels. This time, let's go to Matthew 3, and let us mark three times in the Gospels where the audible voice of God the Father from heaven is heard in the ears of mere mortals, confirming that this day had come. His son, his only son, had arrived. First is in Matthew 3. You, I'm sure you remember this, baptism of Jesus. When Jesus was baptized, verse 16, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened. So remember, angel speaks from heaven. Now the heavens are open. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, listen, verse 17. A voice, from where? From heaven. A voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. In Abraham's case, a voice from heaven said, Take your Son, your only Son. And in Jesus' case, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. No more rams, no more lambs, no more turtle doves, no more pigeons, no more animal sacrifices. The, finally, the cost of the covenant, the lamb who was born perfect, without blemish or spot, so to speak. Indeed, the offering of the covenant son is upon you. This is why he's here. And three times this is testified from the heavens. So this witness of God himself joins all the others, including Abraham. We turn over to Matthew 17 to hear the voice again. In Matthew 17, 
you may recall, I might have this reference wrong, that this we uh, pick up, no, we're, that's correct, we pick up on the Mount of Transfiguration. So this is the event where Jesus is seen in His glory that He shared with the Father before He descended low to earth. He was still speaking, well, let me back up, verse 3, And behold, there appeared to them, that is the disciples, Moses and Elijah talking with Him, that is Jesus, verse 4, and Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, What? This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. Once again, the voice from heaven echoes, This is my beloved Son. And one final text this morning. Three times the Father joins the witness of Abraham's experience in confirming the covenant son has arrived. This is John chapter 12. Turn there with me. And in John 12, we continue past the triumphal entry. We read of those events earlier in this message. In verse 12 and following, Jesus faces some challenges. There are some Greeks who are seeking him. And then it says in verse 27, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Now get the context. Jesus is approaching Calvary. The God, God the Father speaks at His baptism. God the Father speaks at His transfiguration. And now a third time He's about to speak as Jesus approaches Calvary. He cries out, Jesus, Father, save me from this hour. He says, Now my soul is troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose... I have come to this hour. Verse 28, Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, An angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, This voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. The witness of God the Father, three times from glory, joins the witness of Abraham of old, of Jonah, of David, <coughs> of the Queen of the South, and so on and so forth. And everyone who accurately experienced and proclaimed the reality of salvation in the coming one and the witness of God the Father from the realms of glory with an audible voice in the ears of the hearer proclaimed, This is He, my beloved Son. Listen to Him. I am well pleased with Him. He will be lifted up on the mount of the Lord's provision as a sufficient sacrifice to cover your sins. Our worship text this morning was from Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. And just in case we felt like we could use another witness, Jesus adds to this cumulative case of those who testify, who even preceded him in this same chapter. Note verse 37. Though he had done so many things before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The Lord who has believed what he heard from us, us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, 
He has blinded their ears and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Verse 41, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Whose glory? We remember this morning our worship text. The realms of glory are opened. The temple vision, as it's called. And Isaiah sees this God, this divine figure, and these angels with six wings, specially commissioned and designed to worship him forever, crying three times, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. The chambers of heaven, of glory, of the realm of God's perfect habitation are thrown open for a glimpse, for a glimpse by the prophet. And as he looks there, he sees the glory of someone. Who is that someone? That someone is Jesus Christ. And now Isaiah's witness joins the rest. He saw his glory before he came. That is to say, Isaiah, if you will, saw Jesus transfigured before Peter, James, and John ever witnessed that event on the mountain. And he proclaimed the rest of his life to people dull of hearing and with their spiritual eyes blinded. He has a day of reckoning. Turn from your sins. I have seen his glory. The testimony of Isaiah is recorded alongside that of Jonah, alongside that of Abraham, and the rest of the witnesses, all the apostles. And if you do not believe it, all of these voices stand, rise to condemn you. If you are an unbeliever in the hearing of these words, that should send a shudder through your spine. Picture a court case, if you will. So you are pleading not guilty. Yet time and again, witness after witness after witness testifies, and their stories perfectly match, and it becomes clear that the only fool in this room is you. As each individual says in their own experience, by their own eyes, by their own words, by their own hearing, that you are guilty of this horrible crime. When the gospel comes to us and is proclaimed in our ears, when the scriptures are rightly divided and they proclaim that Jesus Christ is the only way of salvation, repent and believe, if you are a believer and you proclaim that witness, no, you don't need to be ashamed. You don't need to apologize for it. You're simply joining your voice to all of these. If God the Father said it three times in the hearing of those who are following Jesus so that it sounded like thunder, the same God who echoed His glory at Sinai opened up the heavens to Isaiah and proclaimed the cost of redemption to Abraham. If He has spoken, how ought that encourage your witness? When you testify to the truth of God's Word, you may not understand it perfectly. You may stumble and stutter. You may not have a perfect command of all the scriptures. You may not have a loud and imposing voice. You may have no oratory charisma, no ability to speak whatsoever. It doesn't matter so much, so long as the things that you say are testified to by the witnesses who've gone before. And if they are, now your voice joins those who reiterated scripture all through the ages, and it powerfully authoritatively calls sinners to repent and to believe. And if you're a true believer, there was a time when you heard that word and you shuddered to the core, you knew you were guilty and you repented. And perhaps now you see with eyes more open how you had zero excuse. Not only does creation testify to the reality of God, but crazy Ninevites who were worshiping fish turned from their idols and clung to Yahweh at the testimony of a prophet with a bad attitude. 
how much more culpable are we if we hear the gospel and turn from the only words of hope and life. In addition to the witness of heavenly revelation, Isaiah's temple vision is cited by Jesus to add to the witnesses that proclaim the truth of who he was and what he would do and who he is forevermore. If creation itself is sufficient to condemn you in your sin, if Abraham proclaimed of his day, if Jonah, Nineveh, and the queen of the south bear testimony, if Isaiah has spoken, if God's son, his only son, has come in the flesh, if God the Father has testified from glory three times, if the apostles have proclaimed, interpreted, and applied all these things in the pages of Holy Scripture, we need not be ashamed. Two applications, quite simply. Do not be ashamed of the gospel because your voice testifying to the truth of God's word in your own experience joins the objective claims all through scripture and it is a powerful and it is an incredible voice. The word of God has the power like a knife to divide soul and spirit. It has the power to silence kings, to make them put on sackcloth and repent of their sins. It has the power to defeat empires and to raise up the lowly and to usher into our experience the Son of God to take on flesh to die for you. So when you proclaim the gospel, proclaim it with boldness, remembering those things. And of course, the second application is, if you do not believe this gospel with all your heart, if you have, as of yet, your eyes blind and your ears dull to the witness that came before, I hope you shudder at the sound of God's authoritative proclamation through the pages of Scripture, and that you hit your knees today, and that it would be for you the day of salvation and that you would join us and proclaim the power, the glory, and the majesty of the God of life and death who rose from the grave, who defeated sin, death, Satan, and paid the wages of sin and the cost of his own blood. Let us close in prayer. Oh Lord, we thank you for the power of your Holy Scripture. It truly encourages us and equips us when we rightly understand it and ascertain its truth. I pray that you would move your church, Lord, with boldness and clarity, to join the witnesses through the ages, Abraham and all the rest, that Jesus Christ alone can save. And I pray, Lord, for the lost in the hearing of this message, if there be any here, if there be any elsewhere, if there be any in the reach where the gospel is, is proclaimed in truth this day, that you would move them to turn from their wicked rebellion, to stop hollering at you mockery and derision. They would repent, believe, and trust you and join us in the cause of proclaiming the glories of the true King. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for dying for us. We thank you for what is commemorated often in this season. And we thank you, Lord, that you have defeated the grave on our behalf, giving us the privilege of joining your victory parade, the triumphal entry, as it were, unto glory, shouting all the while, Jesus saves. Let us be found faithful in doing this, we pray, as fruit of this message, in Jesus' name. Amen.